So we're starting a new series today, and we're actually not going to be in the book of James. We're going to be all around it, but not actually in the book of James. And I want to answer one really big question today, and it's the question, who was James? Who is this man, James, that wrote the book of James? Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mom, didn't have the same dad. They're the half-brother of Jesus. So after Mary had Jesus, Mary and Joseph had um, more kids. Did you guys know this? They, didn't have, they, they had more than just Jesus. They had, they had four other sons, and they actually had at least two daughters. So that's seven kids. That's a big family. At least, not, at least today it would be. Back then it wouldn't be so much. But today it would be a big family. So when you and I think of Jesus... We think just of his ministry, typically. We think of his three years of ministry. We don't typically think of the backstory of Jesus when he was younger and his brothers and sisters. We don't typically go there. And so today we're looking at that backstory this morning. So if you want to get to know someone, you've got to get to know their family, right? If you want to know something about someone, you've got to get to know who their family is. And so today we're going to get to know James so we can get to know his older brother, Jesus. So you guys know um, Jesus started his earthly ministry around age 30. So he was born, he was raised by two great awesome parents. At the age of 30, Jesus leaves home and begins his public ministry in a place called Capernaum, which is close to the Sea of Galilee. He leaves Nazareth and goes off to Capernaum. Much like many of you will eventually at 18 or around there will leave home probably and go somewhere to school, Jesus goes off to start his public ministry in the area close to the Sea of Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth, but most of that ministry takes place around the Sea of Galilee and the towns of uh, the surrounding areas there. And he starts preaching. He calls his first disciples. He starts healing people and doing miracles. And by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, there's this large crowd, this large crowd following Jesus everywhere that he goes. And people are taking notice of him and wondering, what is it about this man? He, He spouts things we've never heard before. He does things we've never seen or heard of before. Who is this man? Jesus. And so by Mark chapter 3, he solidifies his 12 disciples. And after he selects his 12 disciples, in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. After all of this, we read in Mark 3, verses 20 to 21, it says, Then he went home. Now this means Capernaum, not Nazareth. Okay, he goes home to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, when his family hears of his rock star, okay, here, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So his family, his siblings, hear what he's doing and hear about what he's saying about himself, and they think he's lost his mind. They, they hear about his rock star status, they hear about his, this entourage, these people following after him, and they think Jesus has just lost his mind. They think he's gone crazy. You know, I think we're used to the Pharisees opposing Jesus. We're used to the religious elite opposing Christ. But we forget that his own family opposed him initially. His own siblings opposed him initially. And so this is kind of like an intervention. This says they went to go seize him. Now, seize does not mean have a conversation. Seize does not mean, uh, let's discuss this. This means we're going to arrest our brother and bring him back home because he has lost his mind. 
This is like an intervention. You guys, anybody watch this show? It's kind of a depressing show, but the show Intervention on A&E. No one watches that show, do you? It's too depressing. But it's like an intervention. It's like they, they want to come to him and they want to say, Jesus, it's time to come home before we send you to a certain kind of home. All right? They, they, they're, they're tempted because they, they know he's saying some crazy things. And it's true. If you, if you and I had a brother or a sister who started saying that he or she is God, you would do the exact same thing, wouldn't you? Of course you would. You'd probably go to him and you'd say, you know, you're bringing uh, shame to the family name. All these things you're saying. And if you remember Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, he was a carpenter. So he's got a family business, a reputation to uphold. He's, he, this family cares about the appearance um, and the reputation in that area. And Jesus is beginning in their eyes to shame the family name. You know, we can't even go to the marketplace without people snickering and talking behind our backs. Can you just stop with all the nonsense, Jesus? These crazy things that you're saying. His dad has spent years building up this family business. And just like that, um, Jesus' family is starting to become mocked by the neighborhood. In fact, if your sibling did this, you'd want to probably get that person in counseling, wouldn't you? Maybe send them to an institution, the kind where they put you in a straitjacket and lock you in a cold room. This is what you'd probably want to do if, if you had a sibling who was doing these kinds of things. And so his own family didn't believe that he was God, at least not at first. They doubted. And um, the good news, though, is this isn't the end of the story. You're going to see in the life of James how he became a believer in Christ. He became a believer in who his brother was. And I want this to be good news for you today because I know there are people in this room that have doubts and questions. There are people I believe in this room who you would not call yourself a believer And I want you to be encouraged today because you're not the only ones. How amazing is it that Jesus' own siblings didn't believe that he was who he said he was? And so it's okay for you to have your doubts and your questions. My hope, though, is that much like his siblings, that wasn't the end of the story for them. My hope would be that this would not be the end of the story for you, that you would not stay in a place of doubt and unbelief, You'd move into a place of belief in the way that many of his siblings did. And so I want you to um, just think, imagine what this must be like for Jesus. You've been on earth for 30 years. You've been raised by a couple of great parents. You've got several younger siblings. You've been sent by your heavenly Father to save all of mankind. You start preaching. You start healing. You start doing miracles. Many people are following after you. But the people closest to you Your family, they think you've lost your mind. And so Jesus is in a lonely place. I think we forget sometimes that Jesus came, he was human. He was fully God, he was fully man. We forget sometimes that he felt emotion, he felt things like we feel. So put yourself in his situation. You've come to save all of humanity, and the people that are closest to you, your family, the people you grew up with, these people think you're crazy. I know that many of you probably felt the same kind of thing when you have, um, maybe you live in a family, maybe you're a Christian, you're trying to follow Jesus, and maybe your family, um, they're not believers yet. And you've sensed that kind of loneliness, you've sensed that kind of, the feeling of loneliness, that feeling that's, that says, um, 
I feel like I'm the only person that really cares in this family. No one else. They're, they're mocking my faith. They look at where I stand and they think I'm crazy. They, they, they think I've lost my mind. And in many ways, this is exactly where Jesus finds himself. So I want you to be comforted this morning. That's where you find yourself now. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through right now. Jesus knows exactly what you've been through, what you're going through right now. And there should be some comfort in that, I think. Later on, we see um, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Turn over to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Mark 6, verses 1, to, 1 through 6. Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And we read here in Mark chapter 6, it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So this passage points out a few things to us. Jesus was a big deal at this point. And so he goes back to Nazareth, and his crowd follows him back to his hometown, which is not a short journey. He begins teaching there in his hometown of Nazareth. Now don't forget, the people he's teaching, they've known him since birth. They've known him since he was little. And they're looking at Jesus, and they're thinking, isn't this Mary and Joseph's boy? Isn't, isn't this the carpenter? And one guy's like, yeah, yeah, he built me my, my, my workbench. I know who this guy is. I, my, my kids used to play with his kid, with him when he was in the, in the streets. Yes, I know him. We know who this guy is. And in this passage, we get to know um, the names of, of Jesus' four earthly brothers. We see it's James. There's a guy named Joseph, or some people call him Joseph, and that's not Jose, by the way, it's, it's Joseph. And there's Judas, this is not the one who betrayed him, different guy, unfortunate name, different guy. This is Simon, again, not one of the disciples, just a guy named Simon. And none of Jesus' siblings were called to be one of his twelve. Isn't that amazing? that none of his earthly siblings were called to be one of the twelve. It was these, these four other guys that are kind of in the background. But here's the big idea I want you to see out of this text in Mark chapter 6. Christ's deity remained hidden from his hometown and his family until his public ministry began. So you guys love movies that are prequels, right? Like the Star Wars stuff has been... They've been telling the, the backstory of certain aspects of Star Wars, right? Um, that was a while back. Now they're telling more of the stuff that's down the road, right? But um, you love prequels. You love backstories. And so we don't get a lot of window into the backstory of all that, that took place here with Jesus and his siblings and them not believing he was God. 
But how crazy is this for you to think about? That Jesus' own siblings, for 30 years they know Him. And yet they don't understand who He is or who He came to be. Now, people grew up around Him, didn't know who He really was. And this is why I think it's hard for them to come to grips with the things He's saying, the things He's doing. If you notice in the text, no one ever denies what He's saying or what He's doing. In fact, they seem to confirm it. They seem to say, like, who is this guy? Like, we, we know this guy, but he's saying some pretty amazing things and doing some even more amazing things. But, but who is this guy? This doesn't add up. Like, this is just Jesus. And yet, he's saying some amazing things and doing some even better things. And they're just confused, trying to come to grips with who Jesus is now. And so we don't know a lot about um, his childhood. The Bible doesn't give us all that. But how cool would that have been to see, to be a fly on the wall in that house, to see the interactions between Jesus and his siblings as he was growing up in that home? You know, I think most of us, we, we tend to look at Jesus, we, we, we try to imagine, like, what, what, what must it have been like to be, like, you know, toddler Jesus or, like, teenage Jesus, right? I know we, we picture it being like some kind of a teenage Superman thing, right? Like he's doing tricks, but they're not quite honed yet. Like he's not good at it yet, right? That's how we picture him being anyway in our minds. But Jesus didn't, he didn't come out of the womb doing miracles, all right? He didn't come out of the womb doing miracles. It wasn't as if um, his mom gave him a bottle and turned around and it's like now it's like levitating. This is not what happened with Jesus, he wasn't doing miracles as a baby, um, or he wasn't like some kind of a teenage superhero walking around showing off his power. This wasn't Jesus doing miracles at sleepovers. He wasn't like turning his brother into a frog. Like he wasn't, this was not Jesus when he was a, when he was a young teenager. Now what's amazing though, is that Jesus never sinned. That Jesus lived all of this part of his life and he never sinned, not even one time. And so the, the siblings and James had to know something was up, didn't they? They had to notice something was different about their brother Jesus. James is probably thinking to himself, man, like why am I always getting in trouble? Like Jesus never gets in trouble, right? I mean, he had to have these thoughts like why, is, why am I always in trouble and Jesus never in trouble. So we believe that Jesus never sinned. We believe that he never disobeyed his parents. We believe that um, Jesus never yelled at his dad like, you're not my real dad, you know. He never said that to his dad. So we believe Jesus, we believe Jesus never sinned. We believe that he never sinned. In fact, if he had sinned, listen, if Jesus had sinned, don't you think his family would be the first to know? I mean, you guys are well aware of your siblings' sins, right? You know your siblings' sins. They know your sins. You're very aware of it. But if Jesus had ever sinned, don't you think his family would have been the first to know? So how amazing is it that James... We'll cover more of this later on, but James, 
who testifies about his brother Jesus, knew him his entire life, can testify that Jesus never sinned, that he was perfect in every way. It's amazing to think about. The big idea in in Mark chapter 6, I think, is that his family, his hometown, they never understood his deity until his public ministry began. They realized something's up. This is not, that makes sense. I want you to look back at verse 5. Look back at verse 5, where it says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people. Did you catch that? You know, he didn't do any resurrections. No feeding of the five. five. Miracles where there's already faith. But he seems to hold things back when there's little to no faith. Doesn't that seem like the opposite of what you would expect? Don't you think that the people that don't believe that he'd be, okay, you guys don't believe I'm a God? All right, well, how about um, we gather 5,000 people around, and I'll take this bread and these fish, and we'll make it happen. Or how about anybody got a dead guy? Give me a dead guy. I'll show you I'm God. Watch this. Doesn't it make sense to you that Jesus would save his greatest, his biggest stuff, his biggest tricks for the people that don't believe, to convince them. But we actually see the opposite at work, where when they don't believe, Jesus just, he just heals a few sick people. He, he saves the big stuff for the people that already believe. And this is the pattern of his ministry. The people that don't believe, he just, he kind of just quietly moves on. You know why? I don't know. All I can speculate is that he just knows their heart's not ready yet. He's not going to force himself on them. And so he just, he quietly moves on. And he saves his big miracles for the people that actually, in areas where people already have some faith and believe that he is God. Now, the big question I want to wrestle with this morning, um, which we'll get to in a minute because I I lost my place in my notes. Let me find where I was now. Um, so he moves on knowing their hearts are not ready yet and we do know that throughout Christ's public ministry much of his hometown his family did not believe he was who he said he was in fact we read in John chapter 7 verse 5 where it says for not even his own brothers believed in him and his brothers maintained this stance all the way through his public ministry. We see very little mentioned about these brothers and sisters in the Gospels. In fact, um, I think this is profound to think about. Listen to this. Even though his siblings didn't believe he was God, they were still a devoted, religious, Jewish family. They still prayed to God as a family. So I want you to think about this possibility. And this is crazy to imagine. If they were a devoted Jewish, religious, praying, and they thought Jesus had gone crazy. Now picture you and your parents. If, if your parents think you've gone crazy, 
and they're a devoted Christian religious family, what might they do for you? They're going to pray for you. Do you think it's possible that Jesus' parents and his siblings were praying for him to snap out of it? Isn't that crazy to think about? That Jesus' family is like praying to God the Father, like the one that sent Jesus. Oh God, just please bring him back to Jesus. I mean, you, you know, like, please bring him back to, like, like, what would they say, right? Like, how would they express this to him? It's amazing to think about, like, that they had no idea the extent of what he was called to do. And they might even be praying for him to stop being so delusional and to snap out of this delusion that he's in. So, I mean, they could have thought he was having a midlife crisis, right? I mean, 30 was considered old back then. They could, have, they could have thought, you know, is Jesus having a midlife crisis? I mean, some guys buy Harleys. Some guys claim to be God. So they have no idea what's going on. They have no clue what's happening and why he's being this way. So I want to fast forward for a minute to the cross. Look over at John chapter 19. John 19 verses 25 to 27. And here we have the cross. And Jesus is on the cross. And it says in John 19, verse 25 to 27, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Do you get that? That's like three Marys, right? Like Mary, Mary, and Mary. If you named your girl, it was like going to be Mary no matter what. Um, it's a lot of Marys there listed. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, so this is John, um, John always called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's kind of presumptuous, don't you think? Um, John refers to himself that way. He says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So here's the scene. At the crucifixion, Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is still alive. And there's Jesus' mother, Mary. There's his Aunt Mary. And there's his friend, Mary. All standing there. And the Apostle John is standing right there. And Jesus looks at his mother and he points to John. And Jesus says, to his mother, he says, this, John, this is your son. And he looks at John, and he says, this is your mother. And what he meant by that was he meant he wanted John to take care of his mother when he passed away, when he died. So at that point, Mary began to live with John. John took care of Jesus' mother, Mary. And this raises an important question. Where's Joseph? Well, we don't really know. Some people think that he actually may have already been dead at this point. But Joseph isn't listed as being here. Where are, the other, where are the other siblings? We can't answer that either. We don't know where they are. They might actually be there, but we don't know where they are. And so here Jesus' mom is watching him die on this cross. And can you imagine the thoughts that are running through her mind as she watches Jesus die on the cross, her own son die this 
brutal death on this cross? Can you, can you imagine, can you empathize with her thoughts and her feelings in that moment? Um, my grandfather, so this is the grandfather on my mom's side of the family. Um, my uncle, I never met him, but he was killed by a drunk driver at the age of 19. My mom was 16, he was 19. I never met the guy. So my grandfather lived to be to his mid-80s. My grandfather lost his firstborn son in that car wreck. And to my grandfather's dying day, he would get emotional talking about his oldest son. And as a kid, I just thought to myself, no, I get that you're sad, but like, I don't understand why he keeps on crying about this when this happened like years ago. But one of the hardest things for a parent is to lose a, a, a son or a daughter. And I can't imagine that kind of pain, that kind of pain and agony. And can you imagine Mary watching her son, her firstborn son, die this kind of death, and she's witnessing it. She's watching it take place. And so you can empathize with this pain that she must be in as a mom. I mean, she's a real person. She's a real human being with real emotions. And so imagine the anguish that she's in. And I I still have to think that these siblings, these siblings still have affection and affinity for Jesus. They still care for and love Him. They think He's crazy, but they still love and care for their brother. And so imagine their pain, their anguish, as they watch or hear about this all taking place. So the big question becomes for us to answer this morning is this. Why did these siblings of Jesus eventually go from unbelief to belief? Why? What was it that caused them to go from unbelief to belief? What would cause someone to, who grew up with him, saw him for 30 years, watched his ministry from a distance, heard about the teachings and the miracles, but still didn't believe? What would, what would cause someone to go from unbelief to belief? And there's only one thing I can think of, and it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. We know that Jesus appeared to his brother James um, after the resurrection, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Paul tells us that um, this is true. He says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is not the disciple James, this is actually James, Jesus' little brother. So post-resurrection, imagine for a minute, I'm trying to help you get into the story today. Imagine for a minute being at that meeting. Your brother has been killed, you still don't think he's God, and he shows up. And can you picture this reunion? Can you imagine the flood of emotions for James? Can you imagine what he's thinking? Not only do you see your brother after death, but you realize that he is who he said he was. Can you imagine the, the tears that just flowed in that meeting and him realizing for the first time that, oh my gosh, for I never believed it, but now I have to believe this. I have to believe it. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, you have to wrestle with this. You have to wrestle with the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't resurrect then where is his grave? 
Like, where is his grave located? If he didn't resurrect, where is his grave? Because last time I checked, when famous people die, they get famous graves. The most famous graves I've been to are probably three, and it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and C.S. Lewis. Anybody here been to Elvis? You've seen Elvis's grave. That's kind of famous, right? But famous people get famous graves. People with mass followings get famous graves that become enshrined, become memorials, and people, everyone knows where it is, and they take pilgrimages there to pay homage to their, the person that they sought after and that they were following after. This is what happens throughout history. So if you're someone that's sitting here and you're, and you're questioning, wondering, yeah, I don't believe in the resurrection. I can't, I can't, that's just hocus pocus. I can't believe in that. Then where is his grave? Where is the grave of Jesus? Because famous people get famous graves. And everyone seems to know where they are. Jesus never had a grave. Not a permanent one. And so how do you explain all these doubters becoming believers if there is no resurrection? So who did James become after he saw the risen Christ? Well, James became a leader in the church. Gary talked this morning about Galatians chapters uh, just 1 and 2. We'll cover these two quick passages Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This is, again, Paul writing this. It says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to to visit Cephas, meaning Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James was introduced to Paul through Barnabas. So imagine that conversation. James, the brother of Jesus, meeting Paul, the persecutor, former persecutor of Christians. Later on, Paul writes in Galatians 2.9. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now I want you to catch this. Paul says, We met. Me and James, we shook hands. They extended the right hand of fellowship to us. And he refers to James, Peter, and John as pillars in the early church. And then he says that we decided to send James, Peter, and John to the Gentiles and that me and Barnabas should go to the Jews. Now, did you hear what I just told you? If James was assigned to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that means that you and I are Christians today because of someone like James. That the gospel didn't make it over here by accident. The gospel went through James and came to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And as a result, you and I call Jesus Lord and Savior today. It's profound to think about. Something else. Do you know why James, I think, could accept someone like Paul? Because he'd been there too. He doubted too. If you remember, James didn't believe Christ was God. Um, He joins hand with someone like Paul who used to persecute Christians. They have a similar background. Different expression, but similar background. 
he'd been there too. He doubted just like Paul did. He didn't believe Jesus was God. Not until he saw something amazing and it was the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul calls James in Galatians 2.9, he calls him a pillar in the early church. James became the main leader in the church of Jerusalem. He became the main pastor, the main elder, the main leader, the main shepherd in the church in all of Jerusalem, in that area. James went from doubter to believer to church leader to pillar. And so what happened to James from there? In 62 A.D., he was captured by Jewish, Jewish religious leaders. He was taken to the top of the temple mount and he was thrown off. They tried to kill him. And apparently James is a pretty tough guy. He didn't die. He hit the ground and he survived. So they proceeded to pick up stones and clubs and sticks and they just beat him to death. And so James, in 62 AD, he gave his life for something that he formerly did not believe in. Again, profound that someone comes from doubter, skeptic, unbeliever, and becomes a leader, a pillar, a martyr for the cause. Earlier in his life, he doubted. Later in his life, he believed to the point of death. And so, throughout this series, we're going to um, learn from this pillar in the faith how you and I might become someone who can be somewhat like him and live with the same kind of conviction and passion that he lived with. Jesus, it's amazing to think about this, Jesus had a big mission for his little brother. He had a big mission for his little brother. And part of that mission was to write the book of James. And so we're going to dive in the next few weeks and talk about and see what James has to say to the church back then, but what he has to say to the church today. You guys have some questions to go through at your tables. Go ahead and discuss those questions for the next few minutes. You can wrap up at your tables.